Mark chapter 1, we're going to go 2 through 11. Sorry, Kim, I told you not to write it down because I told you something different. 2 through 11, and then we've got several other scriptures that we're going to be looking at because there's a major cross-reference that's happening in this particular text that I want to not gloss over, but look into it. So if you're there, just say amen. Amen. If you're not, it's um, on the screen. Um, What was that? Amen. All right, right. bringing the South back into Utah. Okay, Mark chapter one, verse two, hear the word of the living God this morning. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. One more time, let's just read over the word of the Lord this morning. God, thank you again that though it may have been my voice that spoke, but it was your direct word that we just heard, God. So we ask that you would be mighty to save in this room and that when we leave out of here, we will see how great you are and how beautiful King Jesus is. We love you and magnify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus, although this seems like he's coming out of nowhere, we know from other gospels that he does not come out of nowhere. Um, Jesus was a first century Jew. And that is very important because what the scripture is going to point previous to the gospels is that the coming of the Messiah or the coming of Yahweh um, is going to come from this area as this Jew from the lineage of Abraham and David In fact, this Old Testament quote that he's pointing to is from Isaiah. And it's important because um, Jesus is the climax to the story of Israel. Jesus is the climax, climax to the story of Scripture. And it's important that Mark is quoting from Isaiah um, because one of the central themes throughout Mark's gospel is going to be pointing back from text from Isaiah. But this isn't just a quote from Isaiah. It's also a quote from Moses in the story of Exodus. And it's also a quote from Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. 
So to wrap our minds around this one quote that Isaiah, or that Mark quotes from Isaiah, I want to take us from those three um, quotes. The first is in Exodus 23. I've got it on the screen for you. And you're going to hear this language that they're all going to be very similar, which is very important and very interesting because the Bible has this one central message. And this is the point of Mark's gospel. Look at Exodus 23, verse 20. I told y'all we have a lot of scriptures. We had just one last week, so that's never happened, probably never will happen again in my life. Behold, I send an angel, or that word can be translated as messenger. Behold, I send a messenger or angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Now, here's what you need to know from this particular quote from Exodus from Moses. The story of Exodus was one of the central stories in Jewish narrative Um, around the feast of Passover. Jews would gather and talk about how the death angel passed over their doors uh, post that had the blood of the lamb over them. And they would talk and celebrate what happened in the Exodus, what happened and then being led out of slavery and how God led them out of slavery into a new promised land that he had for them. And that's very important. Now, let's fast forward um, 1,000 years or maybe 950 years, who's counting at this point, to Isaiah chapter 40. And I want you to see very similar language. And this is the direct quote that Mark has given to us. You still with me? You better be because we got a lot of this to go through, okay? Don't be, don't be tripping out on me. Isaiah chapter 40, look what he says in verse one. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the desert highway from our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's interesting about Isaiah, and I mentioned this a few weeks when we were in a particular set of passages in Isaiah, that Isaiah is is divided into two different groups. The first group, and there's 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah, which how many chapters are in the, or how many books are in the Bible? Oh, you guys are smarter than I thought. 66, 66 books in Isaiah. The first 39 books of Isaiah are talking about this impending judgment of God that is on his people. And it is talking about this wrath and it's given us a lot of foreknowledge of things to come. How many Old Testament books are there? 39. The last part of 
Isaiah, which is then the second act of Isaiah, begins in this chapter, in chapter 40 through 66, talks about the redemptive plan of God and the prophecy that we just read is about a future that is to come that will end the Israelites out of exile. They, they have succumbed to, become, to be oppressed in exile by the evil empires around them. And it's not just about them coming out of exile, but it's also about that this highway is going to be made for them, that there's going to be this way out for the children of Israel. And not just that, there's more. Sign up today, right? It's not just about them being led out of exile, but it's about them coming back to the presence of God. It's about God meeting them there where they are. When the children of Israel were led into exile, God's glory and his presence departed. So there was no more communing with the presence of God in this tangible sense. And so the prophet is is telling them about this day that will come some 700 years later where a highway will be made and built right out of the wilderness, and they will be led into this new promised land to where they will be reconciled back with Yahweh into a promised land that is filled with his forgiveness and his peace and his presence. Now there's one more reference from Malachi. Malachi is going to take it a little step further in here, but use the same Exodus-esque language. So Malachi chapter three, there's more to this than being a tithe chapter. Malachi chapter three, verse one, and and listen to what the prophet says. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And just like Moses and just like Isaiah, Malachi is saying the same thing, but he presses it just a little further and saying, but there is also judgment coming. Now that's good news, all right? All right when we hear this, this language of judgment, like we're thinking like, oh no, we don't want to talk about that. We just need to talk about the love of God, preacher. Right? I mean, just give me the grace and mercy. Just don't talk about that judgment stuff. But this is God's justice on full display for those who are hostile and who will refuse to turn to him. 
So it's good news for us because if you're on the side of God, you will not endure the judgment. He will not be Judge Jesus, but he will be King Jesus for you. And so he's going to send a messenger to the people of God so that they will be on the right side of God. So we come back into the scene and we step back into the gospel of Mark chapter two. In between Malachi and the gospel, when John the Baptist appears as this messenger, there are at least 400 and possibly 440, 440 years of silence. First century Jews believed most part that they were still in some type of exile, whether that be through the Roman Empire exiling them and, and dispersing them through the empire. Many of them still believed they were in the dispersa and they were waiting for God to return. They were waiting for what Malachi, what Isaiah, what Moses talked about, Yahweh to reappear. And they believed that before Yahweh would come, there would be a messenger, a messenger to proclaim and to make straight the paths and to prepare the way of Yahweh returning to the people. Back in Mark chapter two, as it's written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his path. So this is Mark's way of saying that messenger that Isaiah was talking about is John the baptizer or John the Baptist, if that fancies you a little more. And John's job is to get the people ready before the coming of God. And how does he do that? He baptizes them. Now, he baptizes them in the wilderness, and then he's proclaiming a baptism of what? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Baptized to be dipped or to be immersed fully into water and for first century Jews, they would have had probably a deeper meaning or understanding of what baptism was more than our Western understanding. For first century Jews, if they would be baptized from one family to the other, they would go through this ritual and the other family that they were being baptized out of would consider them dead. And so for us as believers, we, we see the symbolism of baptism that we are, that, that the old person before salvation is dead. And now we identify in this new family. So, so baptism was this identity thing. It was how we identified from one family to another. And this is, this is really interesting. I need you to wrap our, our minds around this. In John's day, the people who would have been baptized were these Gentiles who would have been converting um, to the Jewish theology. They were converting over to the Hebrew God. And so there's this subtle hit that's happening towards the Jews because Jewish thought was, because of my blood, because I've got Abraham's blood, I'm in. 
Like, because I've got the blood of Adam and David and Abraham, I'm, I'm good. But he, here's what John the Baptist is doing, and, and we can't miss this. He's preparing the way of Jesus, and he's basically saying, I don't care what your blood is. I don't care, I don't care what you identify as ethnically. Make sure I throw that in there. I don't care if you identify as Jew, Gentile, Greek, or Rome, Roman. I don't care. How you will be on the side of God is faith in him and him alone. Now get baptized. And the Jews probably would have been ruffled a little bit. Right? Because they think because of their ethnicity, they're on the right side of God that kind of destroys that whole idea. He's saying, in order for God to appear, I'm preparing this way for God to appear, and I don't care if you're a Jew or a Gentile, you better get yourself together. Get baptized, repent, and believe. And this message is for all of them. On the surface, we think that the Jews would be quite offended by that. And I'm sure there was. We can, we can assume that some of these Jews were probably offended by that. But what does the text say in the next verse? And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Like it's this revival that's taking place. Like everybody's coming out. Like from the south, from the north, like thousands of people are coming to this because they believe that this could be the guy that Malachi, that Isaiah, that Moses talked about. So what does that mean for them? Yahweh is about to appear. Jesus is coming. Messiah, King is on his way. So of course they want to prepare themselves and we know that John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, was a very influential man. In fact, if you were influential, well, let me say it like this. King Herod killed him. You're not killed by the king unless you are seen as a threat, right? Let's, let's ask Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was directly killed by Hitler's command. Right? Like you're not, you don't have a target on you from a king or a dictator unless they view you as a potential threat to their empire. So John the Baptist had a huge influence in the country. Many people were coming to the Lord because of the ministry of John the Baptist. They were being baptized because of John the Baptist and his ministry. And John the Baptist is saying, listen, there's a new promised land that is coming and that is on its way. And you won't be on that side based off of your ethnicity or your economic status. There's a better promised land waiting for all of us, not just the Jew. And again, it's filled with forgiveness, peace with God and the presence of God. And that's the invitation that's being given by Mark in this gospel here, that it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. That just means you're not a Jew. 
It doesn't matter. The invitation to join in in that new promised land, right? We're using that new promised land because this is Exodus language that Mark is using here. It is promised land language that Mark is using here. And he's telling us, listen, there's a land of forgiveness, peace, hope, and eternal presence of God waiting for you. That's the offer. Now look at verse six. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. I just got to ask, has anybody tried locusts lately or any time in their life? I was just wondering. I haven't either. Just curious if you were going to be that guy. So Mark is saying that this boy who appears on the surface to be from Alabama, right? I can say that because that's technically where I'm from. I don't claim it. He's nothing like the religious elite. Nothing like the corrupt religious establishment. Most lived in Jerusalem, were well-educated, wealthy, and some even were colluding with the Roman Empire by imposing higher taxation in the temple to the people of God. He's in a wilderness. He's not in the city of Jerusalem. He's by the Jordan, which is going to be interesting in just a moment, not in a temple. He's poor. He's not rich. He looks like somebody who we would not say is a prophet. He doesn't look the part, and he sure doesn't eat the part either. Which should give us a lot of hope, right? Have you ever thought to yourself, you know, I just don't feel like I'm qualified. Like I don't dress this way. I don't, I don't have the right credentials. I don't, I don't have this high, you know, um, economic status. I don't, you know, I'm not in this certain group of people. So I just don't feel qualified. Well, good news. God doesn't care. In fact, the, the people that he uses are people who most likely, they just, they look like crap on paper, okay? The, like, just consider this for a second. Yes, I use the word crap. Just consider this. Like, I would never let King David serve in ministry, like serve in the kids' ministry, right? I wouldn't let half these people serve in kids' ministry. Moses murdering folks with his bare hands? But these are the people who God uses. We got some wooly booger looking joker from Alabama coming up here and saying he's wanting to preach. I'm like, let's sit down first, okay? Let's check your doctrines and theology and make sure those all check off. God's not doing that in this story. Look at verse, well, let me, before I get to that, there's, a, there's an interesting story because John is getting his, John the Baptist is getting his fashion cues from Elijah. And this, so this is like some really interesting parallels happening in this text. Um, there's a cross-reference in 2 Kings uh, chapter 1, verse 8, and it says this, they answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, oh, it is Elijah, the Tishbite. That's, that's a funny story. Go back and read it. Uh, basically, they're like, hey, do you guys remember his name? Um, like, like what, what was his name? Like, I don't know his name, but I, I know he wore some really weird clothes. And you're like, oh, that's Elijah. I know who you're talking about. Like John the Baptist is like getting his cues from fashion from Elijah. 
And many, many, this is where it gets really interesting. Many Jews were expecting Elijah to come back. Remember the story of Elijah? He didn't die. He was like whirled up and like taken up from heaven, like a scene from like the fifth kind, right? Like some aliens like abducted him or something like, like the presence of God comes down and anyone knows where John or where Elijah was when he was taken up? At the Jordan. So these people thought this could be this Elijah, this new Elijah, this Elijah type person. And of course they would have thought that because all signs pointed to it. John the Baptist is at the Jordan. He's also in the the wilderness. He's wearing these weird things. He's eating just like Elijah was eating and dressing just like Elijah. And so all of scripture is pointing that there will be one like Elijah, this a messenger. And here he is, John the Baptist. So he preached and he said, after me comes He who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Man, John the Baptist is saying like, I'm not even on the level of a slave. Right? That's what slaves are. They clean their feet. They, they untie their, 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 their sandals and do all of those things. And John the Baptist, you know, while we're, while we're like praising John the Baptist right here and, and like he's growing this massive movement of God, like John the Baptist is saying like, I think very lowly of myself. Like I, I'm just this random dude. And now according to Malachi and Isaiah, the messenger's job is to prepare for the coming of Yahweh, right? And now John the Baptist, his message is to prepare the way of who? Oh, come on, y'all. Y'all remember last week when I told you that nine out of 10 times, the answer is always Jesus. Yes. So geez, I wonder then, Jesus is Yahweh. What a beautiful description and a deep theological understanding of who Jesus is that is laced throughout all of these scriptures, pointing to a God, pointing to a Yahweh that's going to come. And John the Baptist's job is to prepare the way of Jesus. And Yahweh has come. He is here. He is the Lord, our God. He is the Kyrios our Yahweh. He is the creator of the universe. The immortal, invisible manifested himself as Jesus. And now Jesus comes and he baptizes them with what? The Holy Spirit. That time the answer wasn't Jesus. This is an interesting thing that we cannot overlook, the Holy Spirit that he's baptizing us with. In the Old Testament, only few experienced this type of indwelling or this um, just kind of a manifested Holy Spirit upon certain people, prophets, priests, kings. And now in Jesus, he encompasses that role as the prophet, priest, and king. But 
He's baptizing you with the Holy Spirit. Here's what that means. In Jesus, baptizing us with the Holy Spirit, now we can open up the word and prophetically proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the role of the prophet. And now for those who have been empowered by the Holy Spirit, Jesus baptizing you through his spirit. We are a royal priesthood. And according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that we proclaim the virtues of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And now because Jesus baptizes us in the Holy Spirit, according to Revelation 5, he has made us a kingdom and priest to our God, and we will reign with him forever. So this is what the Holy Spirit does through us. And then look what happens, and then I'm almost done. You guys are doing great hanging with me here. In verse 9, just real quickly, 311, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. More on this later. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And so what is John seeing here? What is going on in this passage that John has become this new or this better Elijah, as, as Jesus himself would say, there's not a man been born before John who is better than this guy. That John prepared all of the way through his message of baptism with repentance and faith in God. And now Jesus is here. Now John gets to see the waters parted. John gets to see the highway fulfilled. And Yahweh is standing right there with him. Now, remember, again, let me go back to, and I'll I'll close with some questions, but I need you to follow me here for just a moment. Let me put my nerd hat on, if I can. For 400 and possibly 40 years, we have no record of God speaking to his people from the book of Malachi, from the book of Matthew, or, or for when John the Baptist comes onto the scene. 440 years. Nothing. A lot of things are taking place. God's moving in the background, things that people don't see, preparing a way for Jesus to come unto the scene. We call that the intertestamental period where these 400 years, there were no prophets, there were no visions, there were no thus saith the Lord. The book had been closed. So God sends a man named John the Baptist And if you remember, his dad was Zechariah. You remember this guy? This account is in Luke. Zechariah, now John the Baptist is a preacher's kid. You gotta watch out for those kids. They're dangerous. John the Baptist was a preacher's kid, but he did not take the same route that Zechariah did. Zechariah was a priest in the temple. You remember the story of Elizabeth, his wife, like she gets pregnant. He's like, there's no way this is going to take place. No way this is going to happen. And you remember what God did? Shut his mouth. He's like, okay, you don't believe me? Then I'll close your mouth and you will not be the one who breaks the 400 year silence. In fact, I'll use your ragtag looking son 
So this is interesting that God did not use an elitist, a priest inside the temple to break that 440 years worth of silence. No more thus saith the Lord, God not coming in visions, God not coming in prophecies. Instead, he uses a man who's out in the wilderness where the proverbial demons were. He uses a man who's dressed like he's from Alabama and he's out there eating weird things and he's saying this weird message to repent and he's talking to the Jews and he's talking to the Gentiles. God did not use the religious establishment of the day to break 400 years of silence. Instead, he used this common weird looking joker to do it. And that's fascinating to me. In fact, it's, a, it's very hopeful for me that for us, like being a ragtag bunch of jokers up in this room, we ain't got to have it all together. Instead, we could be a window through which God uses for the people of Cedar City to hear the message of Jesus Christ. Repent. Be saved. Look at Jesus. Now we hear this and we're thinking, you know, John the Baptist you know, he's a great guy, but what did John the Baptist do? He just, just used his voice. He just, that's all he did. Look at Jesus. What, look, at, look at Jesus. He's coming. You know what you can do? You, you can also use your voice. It's not hard. You can also point people to Jesus. The question is like, despite, you know, him being in a literal wilderness, you just got to find out like, where are you at? What's your wilderness, right? Is it your school? Is it your job? Is it all of these different types of areas where there are lost people? And so we're complaining that we're in those situations. We're complaining, well, God, I wish I had a better job. Well, God, I wish I was in a better school or I wish I was in a better house. I wish my spouse was better, right? And maybe those are the wildernesses that God has you in so that you can proclaim. So that you can cry out in that wilderness. So that you can make that message of Jesus Christ known. Like, here's what I know. Like, one day, I'm not going to be here. All right? And here's the encouragement that I have for you also. One day, you ain't going to be here either. Right? You don't live on this earth forever. And I know most of us think we do. But one day, God's going to call you home. And my hope and my prayer for myself, for my children, for my my wife, and for this church is that we would be like this man, John the Baptist, who was a voice in the wilderness crying out, repent. Repent. Jesus, look at Jesus that on my deathbed, there would be scores and scores of people said, hey, that's that guy. He was crying in the wilderness. And that's my prayer for you, that one day when you take your last breath, these people look at you and say, that's the person who cried in the wilderness. And that's how I came to Christ. That's the person who was crying out in my school. That's the person who was crying out in my job. That's my dad who was crying out in my home. 
For that's my child who is crying out to me. Prepare the way of the Lord. And so there's just three questions from this. Have you repented? Have you repented of your sins and turned to Jesus Christ as your savior? And have you been baptized? We've been talking about this. If you want to be baptized, you come let me know. If I had a pool right here right now, I would dunk you right now. It's a call for us. Repent. Baptized. We are celebrating this fact that Christ has purchased for us not only life, but him giving us a new exodus, leading us into a new promised land where there is forgiveness and peace with God and where we have an eternal presence with God. Thank you.